In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 392 this week on the show we welcome nataki garrett and scarlett kim of the oregon shakespeare festival and latoya peterson of glow up games to talk about hella iambic the collaboration between the famed theater company and the game studio that has previously worked with the likes of hbo on creating original games based on existing works the existing work in this case is Shakespeare's best-known play, Romeo and Juliet, and the Hella Iambic app is adding a whole new dimension later this month to OSF's currently running production of the play. There's a great conversation ahead. Seriously, love this. Fantastic. Can you guess the part that I laughed at not only <laughs> during the recording, but also laughed while I was listening back to the recording at like the same spot. Can you? There's a great conversation ahead, but first, the news. It's been a big news week. And by big news week, I mean Thursday was enormous, tossing a lot our way. Uh, the biggest piece of news for our field being the announcement that Disney's Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, the two-day-long immersive adventure that caused sticker shock for many and FOMO for even more, will be taking its last voyage at the end of September this year. This after opening in the spring of 2022 and having just won a Thea Award and, according to Disney, their highest customer satisfaction ratings for anything in the parks. More of my take on the closing at the end of the show and in this week's edition of The Irregular coming up in the backer-only feed, because you know we had to. Uh, but that's not the only news out of Disney in Florida. Seemingly as part of the ongoing battle with Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, who is using his power to attempt to punish the company for taking stances opposed to his on the subject of gay rights, the company has announced it is scrapping plans for a $1 billion corporate campus that would have moved the headquarters of the iconic Imagineering Division from Southern California to the Orlando area. The planned move had already caused upheaval, upheavals at WDI, and with the news Brand new and corporate cuts happening across the entertainment giant, it's yet to be seen what exactly this reversal means for Walt Disney Imagineering employees who stayed on in recent years. Finally, some unabashedly upbeat news, and indeed this was the first news I saw today, and I was like, oh, it's going to be a good news day. Uh, upcoming immersive entertainment company, uh, up-and-coming immersive entertainment company Cosm, not long after their announcement of a deal with the NBA to bring games to their dome projection venues, announced a partnership with digital artist Nancy Baker Cahill, no stranger to this show, to bring Cahill's visual narrative project Seek to their upcoming venues, the flagship of which which will be in LA's Hollywood Park. You can check out more about Cahill's work and Cosm as a company in episodes 381 and 365, respectively, of this very podcast. Speaking of connections, here's something else. You'll be able to meet a lot of the people we just talked about, seriously. 
tons of them, including Nancy Baker Cahill and Scarlett Kim, who is one of this week's guests at the next stage immersive summit coming up on June 2nd through 4th here in Los Angeles. We're getting down to the last batch of badges and are just two weeks out. And we've been adding even more incredible speakers from Meow Wolf, VR for Good, Netflix Live Experiences, and more in the past couple of weeks. Check out the website in the show notes. The full schedule is going up this weekend. And don't get to the other side of this month and find yourself feeling the FOMO. Take your career in immersive and experiential to the next stage. Uh, also want to give a quick shout out to uh, one of the, our latest sponsors. And we've got a couple more to announce next week. I just got to clear the, the language for it. Uh, I want to thank our friends over at Yes Please Coffee, uh, my dear friend Tonks over at Yes Please Coffee, who is our coffee sponsor for the next stage and also the person who keeps me most caffeinated. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Tonks. Thank you, Yes Please. Uh, I'll put a link to Yes Please in the show notes. Uh, Yes Please, Uh, basically, seriously, the official coffee of no persinium. I mean, that's just true at this rate. It's what I drink in the mornings. Um, And we're going to be able to give a bunch of it to our guests uh, coming up at the top of June. So uh, free coffee, everybody. I mean, of course, there's free coffee, but you know, good free coffee. That's a rare thing. All right. Um, Before we go. Just want to thank our latest podcast backers as the rally to keep us going continues. This week, we've added new backers, Cassandra Ikniowski, Witten Frank, and Jason DeLeo. We're holding steady above 3K a month, that oh-so-important line that makes this show and everything else we do possible. Remember, as little as $2 a month makes a difference to us, and hitting up patreon.com slash nopersidium not only powers the podcast and websites for No Pro and Everything Immersive, It also gets you into our member-only Discord. In fact, we started scheduling backer-only and professional hangouts in the Discord, weaving together our community a little tighter over coffee or whatever you want to drink. I'm drinking. I'm drinking, yes, please. Uh, Something I'm getting myself uh, to wake up early for, I did today, which is why it sounds so loopy. It's the the 12th hour of working. Whee! If you're already a backer, don't forget to link your Patreon account to Discord. And I don't, don't worry. I took some breaks in the middle. I took a walk. Uh, If you're already a backer, don't forget. People are always like, oh, you work too much. And I'm like, no, I have adult ADHD is what I do. This means I'm always working because I'm always, ooh, squirrel. Don't forget to drop us a review on iTunes or podcatcher of choice. I'm not even fixing it. And share the articles you find useful on your social media platform of choice. It helps immensely. Also, I can't see any squirrels. It's dark. We are always no persinium. I had a lot of sugar, except on Insta, where we are no underscore persinium. Oh, man, Noah. As always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mystery, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Boulette, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Tom Leonetti McGuire, Kurt Collins, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Lecker LeCool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And yes, we have a backer discount coming in the Patreon soon. There's going to be a discount code for the backers of the show, for one of the shows here in the Hollywood Fringe, specifically Boston Bloodsuckers, Boston Bar Bloodsuckers. That's coming up. And if you are someone who wants to hook up our crew with uh, special deals, uh, hit me up at noah at nopersinium.com for details. And with that, all that news, all that information, and more to come on the back end, let's get into this truly excellent interview with our three guests. 
Joining us now are Nataki Garrett and Scarlett Kim of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and Latoya Peterson of Glow Up Games, who are all here to talk about their collaboration, Hella Iambic, a mobile game designed to be played during the production of Romeo and Juliet that is currently running at OSF. The game will be making its debut at the end of this month. Hella Iambic explores the space between live theater and immersive play and blurs the line between classical literature with hip-hop. Now, since we have three guest voices on the show today, let's take a moment to let everyone ID themselves. Nataki, why don't we start with you? Hi, everybody. My name is Nataki Garrett. I am the outgoing artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and I use she and her pronouns. Scarlett? Hello, everyone. I'm Scarlett. I use she, her pronouns. I serve as associate artistic director and director of innovation and strategy at OSF. Latoya? Hey everyone, I'm LaToya Peterson. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the co-founder and CXO, Chief Experience Officer at Glow Up Games. And, uh, you know, we make games and playful experiences that center black and brown joy. Okay, so I read that core copy above about Hella Ambeck. I want to cop. I did not write that, uh, but I read it. Uh, And as someone who's from the Bay and the 90s, it feels so good to use Hella in a professional context. So thank you for that. Uh, LaToya, I want to start with you. For someone coming to this production of RNJ, what does the app add to the experience and and what will they be doing it? Help us wrap our our brains around this. Absolutely, absolutely. So... Uh, this project kind of was dreamed up out of the really interesting take that Nataki and Scarlett were looking at in terms of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and how you make these works more relevant. We're a traditional game studio. I cannot say that we thought about theater before this point, before <laughs> it was not a thought that we had, uh, though myself and my co-founder, Matu Kandaker, uh, we both really love experimental play. And uh, we love things that blend the physical and the digital, um, you know, all these different pieces. One of my favorite things at GDC is Experimental Games Workshop. And so this idea of being able to play in different contexts with different types of tools is always appealing. And so when we first found out about Oregon Shakespeare Festival and some of the work that they were doing, um, it was just really interesting and boundary breaking and uh, ceiling shattering in a way that is a place that we like to play at Glow Up. Like we're the first all women of color founded game studios. There just aren't that many executives of color in games, especially not in a C-suite, especially not running studios. And so a lot of the work that we started to do with our projects was around reflecting cultural storytelling and things that made sense from our point of view. And so, you know, we were generously offered to come out and to see what Oregon Shakespeare Festival was doing and how they were like reimagining these different pieces um, and then looking at some of the contemporary plays that Nataki brought as well, it's kind of like, you know, sitting in Confederates, I think was the moment where I was like, okay, we actually have to do something with them. Like, I don't care what it is. Let's figure out what is something we can do to support this awesome mission. And so um, the idea was floated that we would start with Romeo and Juliet, which is, again, like, I think probably the most iconic Shakespearean work. Uh, you don't have to read it to know the plot. You don't have to do anything. So it kind of made a lot of sense from a world building perspective. Everybody knows the plot, even if they haven't read the play or understood it or listen to the Shakespearean version is just so in the culture. Um, And then what Nataki brought to it with the artistic vision, we really loved because so we are a game studio deeply rooted in hip hop. We have a chief rap officer whose name is Samus, um, who helped create Rhyme Set, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And so our main mechanic is a rap rhyme composition mechanic um, called Rhyme Step that we pioneered for the Insecure game. And we were looking for new ways to use. And so when we saw Nataki's uh, idea for Romeo and Juliet, that it'd be very West Coast, very Bay Area. We were like, oh, okay, we have to figure out what we can do with this. So we looked at our existing rhyme mechanic. We started thinking about ways people could play 
and play in a theater context. Because again, the biggest hurdle to get over is that cultural expectation that in the theater, your phone is down, mm-hmm. everyone is silent. There isn't like that back channel. However, that's really like counter Shakespeare in a lot of ways that we were talking about where, you know, they were used to the peanut gallery. Things are repeated all the time because they assume people are talking over the actors. There's all these different pieces and the ways in which we've evolved to use our phones as second screens and as, you know, back channels during major events. It just made a lot of sense to adapt the texting mechanic that we had in the Insecure game and the hip hop mechanic and combine it into something that could work for a live theater experience. I noticed one of the things in the deck was about everyone gets added to the Verona group chat. Yes. (laughs) So, um, you know, part of this is that we're spinning up as a prototype. We had no idea and never tried to work with a live theater troupe before. We have learned so much in so many ways. For example, one of the things is that the script changed all the time, but it's the same script. Like Romeo and Juliet is the script. But depending on the production, people put emphasis in different places of the script. Never really occurred to us not being thespians, but, you know. (laughs) Like that's apparently a thing. Um, So as we were thinking about what to do, we thought, what would be fun? And what would be fun for particularly a a newer audience coming to the theater, a newer audience that's less versed in these classics? And we went, okay, well, most folks are in a group chat anyway, in some form or fashion, right? Normally text, WhatsApp, Messenger, whatever you like to use. Most people are in conversation in that way, or they send short videos to each other. So the first thing we thought was, what if we created an experience where you are now a citizen of Verona? And you get to have all the trash talking from my personal favorite character, Mercutio, and all of the other folks who are side characters. I personally am kind of obsessed with side characters. I really like their perspective on how things are playing out because everybody always looks at the leads, right? But what are the side characters doing? And so the first thing that we came up with was kind of the Verona Bros group chat with Mercutio, Benvolio, and Balthazar. And how they would talk trash about Romeo. So, you know, how you have your friend in a group chat. Maybe there's like a sub group chat with you know, slightly less friends that might have slightly more shade. And that was the goal we were going through. We said it was kind of like a black Twitter meets group chat feel. Um, And we wanted the player to feel very intimately involved. Um, So initially, the first concept, it was just the Montague perspective. Mm. And um, just anybody allied with House Montague. And as we started playing around, as we started seeing how the production developed, we realized we needed to kind of bring them more broadly into Verona. Um, And it also gave us a lot of space in the group chat to play with characters that are unseen, like Rosalind, who is, you know, arguably (laughs) like one of the more iconic characters of the whole reason Romeo's at this party, but you never hear from her, you never see her. So giving her a voice, giving Mercutio's brother a voice, giving the prince a different kind of voice, and being able to have that all blend together uh, was really appealing to us. Almost a little bit of like, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildensterning it, uh, for those who don't know, that's, you know. There's there's the play, the Stoppard play that like takes us through parts of Hamlet with like the side characters, but like using the app to give that extra dimensionality of like what's happening off off stage and what would be happening off stage is everyone would nowadays would be texting each other. Right. Yeah. Especially at the party scene. Right. Like that was one of the biggest ones where they're all searching for Romeo and everyone in Nataki's production has a cell phone. It is just following logic that they would be texting it. Romeo, where are you? What happened? Bruh, where you at? Like those things just made a lot of sense in this world. And then also allowed us to open up a window to like the educational portion. So we're really careful. We're trying not to be like branded as ed tech because that's not exactly what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting is how do people interpret something in a uh, Shakespearean language, which you don't use on a regular basis? Are people understanding? Are people seeing things? So it also became a place to reinforce what was happening or give greater context to why right. certain characters are, are behaving in the way that they are. And then to also introduce, quite frankly, a lot of shade 
to what is going on. Like uh, Romeo and Juliet is this great tragedy, but it's also super ridiculous and kind of absurd. When you, like you look at like the uh, the chain of events that happened within like two days, and oh, so yeah. for us to be able to be like as a modern audience to be able to kind of talk back to what's happening without disturbing the play was a really appealing place for us. So this is so so the group chat's popping off while while the play is happening. So people are able to engage with it, or are are they just seeing? Are they are they interacting to some degree? So we'd use a choice based narrative in a yeah. lot of ways. Um, so it works similar to our insecure game. And one of the things that we really had to work on for this uh, integration was when is someone's eyes supposed to be up on the stage versus when should they be on the app? And that's a mm. tough one because again. On one hand, audiences' attention naturally wanders during any kind of program, any kind of thing. And people are used to, at this point, toggling between, you know, their second screen, what's going on on their phone, and their primary mode of transit. It doesn't matter if it's the Super Bowl or the Oscars or the Emmys or whatever. Any kind of live, large event, people are normally going between, like, what's the reaction happening and then what is going on in front of me. And so we were looking at that dynamic for Verona. But one of the things we wanted to be mindful of was just the the craft that is involved in live theater and that intimacy that comes with stage um, that you don't get with other types of mediums. And we didn't want to break that at key moments. So there was um, one moment that I think, you know, Scarlett Mataki can speak to where they were really like, oh, we should do the Queen Mab moment. We should do the Queen Mab moment. We should make something. And then when I saw what the actors did with the Queen Mab moment, I was like, absolutely not. We cannot put anything <laughs> on screen during this. Like they have choreographed it. It's only a minute long. Like they're going to miss too much. Like it's got to be before or after. Um, but, you know, working out those pieces of when are eyes supposed to be up? When do we direct things back? When is somebody allowed to kind of wander? So when we get into these meandering scenes, you know, is this the point where we put in like a text from the friar? Is this a point where we put in, you know, some shade from Paris? Where are the places where the app is enhancing but not detracting from the main work? I love, and I want to open this out to everybody because I love that you're thinking about this design problem because this is the design problem that popped up when people first started messing around with second screen experiences. Like I remember, oh, this must have been back in 2011, 2012. There was Fourth Wall Studios, which was trying to create second screen or or all-in-one second screen experiences uh, for um, for 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 television shows, so they like produce these television shows, and then they're having like second screen experiences you could be having at the same time. And you know they had you know Patrick Soon Xiong, like the billionaire who now owns like the L.A. Times, who made his fortune on medical. He was like the investor in this thing, and they were trying to crack this, and like no one could crack the actual flow. And it sounds like, and Scarlett and Nataki, maybe you can jump in here. It sounds like this is starting to approach it almost as if the the AR and the app is the equivalent of like a soundtrack score that there's there's you know there's an interplay between the the text and what's happening uh, in a way that's that's meant to 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 not overwhelm it. Well, one of the things you have to think about is the you know there are some people so phones are in the room people are using them doesn't matter. Phones yeah. are going to ring, you know, if you're if you're um, at a certain demographic, your phone's going to ring because you forgot to turn it off. And if you're at a different demographic, your phone's going to be on because you're engaging with your um, armrest partner on in a conversation about what you're seeing. And so I think one of the things that I think is important is it's it's not about it's not about providing um, like an additional source of entertainment. It's about acknowledging that um you're likely to have this thing in your hand anyway. 
and you're likely to to actually be using it as a point of engagement anyway. You know, on opening on one of the uh, previews, there was a group of, of 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 teenagers in the room, and they had their phones in their hands, and they held they were holding their phones to their hearts, right? Because it's just an extension of your hand now. It's not any. It's just something that you have in your hand. Whereas I think in 2011, it was still this, um, you know, sort of odd to you know carry this thing around with you and and answer it while you were um, in the grocery store. Um, you know, you were less likely to to be so so tied to it. Now, so much is engaged with it. So instead of acting like that's not happening, um, you know, one of the the reasons why I was excited about this particular collaboration is because it does say this is happening. We intend for it to happen. And if this is something that you're doing anyway, you already have it there. If you're going to hold it here, you might actually pull it down. You might engage. You might not. Right. Um, we want to actually we want to engage with you if that's what you're doing. Um, I also feel like, uh, you know, there's a, in the theater, in the space of the theater, there is this, you know, I've had somebody say to me, well, I just can't handle it when the phones are in the room. And I was like, it's like, it's like saying you can't handle it when like breathing happens or when somebody (laughs) coughs in a room. It's like, it's like, it's, it's, it's a part of the experience. Um, and they were like, well, you're just encouraging it. And I was like, no, actually what I'm doing is acknowledging what's already existing. And I'm saying that there can be an alignment between what exists um, and, 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 and what we mean to happen. There can be intentionality behind the, how those two things connect. So I don't know if it's a soundtrack, right? So because some people might not engage it until after they leave the theater. Um, uh, and it's not, it's like if it doesn't happen, if they don't actually open the app in the room, the play still happens. If they open the app and they're in the room, the play still happens. What it is is the acknowledgement that there is that that, that these two things are existing um, uh, simultaneously and symbiotically, and that there and that there should be an opportunity to engage in those two things. Should that be your choice? I actually believe that um, you know either one of two things will happen in the next five to seven years. Um, there'll be a complete banning of cell phones in these rooms, and if you have your cell phone, you'll be ousted and banned from the theater. Right. Or um, there'll be more opportunities for people to engage uh, with the with this apparatus that they have in their hands, anyway. Right. Um, and those are the, like those are the the most two likely most things to happen in in a theater. Cons- and that is if young people, as that is if we can get a younger generation into the theater. Because if that younger generation doesn't come into the theater, um, the the people whose phones are left on because they forgot to turn them off will eventually begin to die off. And there will be no engagement with another generation of people in any way, shape or form. Um, so I'm, what I'm saying is that since, since all these people are in the same space, why not just acknowledge that the, that the machines are in the room? Yeah. Well, and, the, and there's something, the way that you're approaching this one from a creative point of, of bringing in the characters who don't have as much of a voice in the show as the script is, has, but who clearly, like Rosalind, have agency in the world, it's opening up the iris to gather more perspective and and give dimensionality to, you know, Verona, which, you know, we, you know, to Latoya's point, we've either absorbed via osmosis or we've been coming back to over and over again if you're if you're an old theater hand and you know you get bored with the main characters really early on and wonder like yeah but what's you know like do did the friar and the nurse have a history and you start you start wondering stuff and wanting to see what's what's happening at the at the edges of it all and this creates an affordance for that 
Yeah, just to add, you know, sitting behind the high school students, which I uh, love doing, that's my favorite seat in the house, um, to kind of understand and view how they view and experience how they experience theatrical storytelling. So that's that's uh, where I always sit during our previews. Um, and I really happen, you know, with, with our production of R&J, thinking a lot about how uh, attention is embodied is so much more expansive and pluralistic. Like, I, I mean, and, and it really made me think about when is a moment in life where I'm doing one thing? I'm almost always, if not always, doing more than one thing. And, you know, the students are sitting in front of me and they're kind of responding to the show, but responding to each other's responses. And I'm like, actually, these are not, uh, it's not like a primary, secondary, and tertiary experience. It's actually all this kind of kaleidoscopic, uh, layered, holistic experience. And I think that was very moving to me because I, I, I feel like um, when I came up in the theater, there was such a hegemony of, oh, there has to be a single point of focus on stage. And there's this one singular story. And if you don't get it or if you don't identify with it, then you're like, then you're, then you're a loser. <laughs> I don't know. Then you're, you're outside of it. So the, I, to me, this, what's, what's most liberating about this project is that it's a radical permission giving to our younger uh, generation of audiences that you can actually be yourself and for you to bring yourself into the experience is not additive or something that's um, secondary or auxiliary. It's actually something that's um, being uh, conceived of as part of the total experience. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited about you know this this is the beginning of thinking about oh you know theater how we experience theater can it actually be something that's more um, of a call and response can we think of it which is you know of course as we know um, the origins of performing arts was always a call and response and you know I always we were joking during previews about during the Elizabethan theater times like people would throw rats on stage as a way to express their <laughs> express their uh, uh, effervescence and enthusiasm so like where did that go or they or they pay extra to be on stage and be seen like hanging around at the edges right I mean yeah, or they throw tomatoes or you know I think the other thing is that even even in this sort of I don't know what version of theater that we're that is is normalized right now um even in those spaces somebody's going to open a cough drop somebody's going to cough somebody's going to whisper very loudly that they couldn't hear what was happening on the stage I mean, it's it's like you're in a room with other human beings. Right. And the whole operation is trying to make you feel like you're sitting at home in front of your television. And I just am, you know, like I, so I, um, I, I'm black uh, for people who can't see me. Um, and I, I grew up in spaces, um, including all the way through college, in which the call and response was a, was a sort of native part, you know, of my experience. So... You know, uh, when I when I went to white theater, my experience was sit on your hands and act like you're not in the room. And when I went to any other kind of theater, my experience was let people know that you're in the room and, you know, make sure that they can hear you clap and laugh loudly. And so um, uh, this idea that somehow you're supposed to be like non-existent in a space with other human beings is really... Um, I think antithetical to how these plays were constructed, why they were constructed, who they were constructed for. And it's all about a kind of um, uh, setting a comfort level that's around elitism as opposed to um, creating a comfort level that is about connectivity. So if you like cross-culturally, there are all kinds of human beings that don't actually 
exist in these spaces in which they they try to hold very still and not cough, right? Um, uh, and so this engagement again is it is a, is a, is an acknowledgement that like you're in this space, you're engaging with other human beings. Uh, if you're a certain generation, you're likely engaging on your on your device. If you're another generation, you're engaging because you're in a room with other people. Either way, it's about setting the intentionality and making it so that it's it's possible for you to make those engagements. And there's also a degree, when, particularly when it comes to live, you know, anything, but particularly theater, like the the thing we get from going to the theater and seeing people perform with other people in the audience is the thing we cannot get, Nataki, to your point, sitting in our homes watching television. And it, it, you know, it feels so much like for a lot of the 20th century, it was trying to like, you know, theater was trying to replicate, you know, what people expected from, you know, watching CBS Playhouse at home. And, and you, you can still go to some theater and see, you know, a unit set on a proscenium and it just, I I watch a show like that. I'm just like, why am I even here? Like someone wanted, I've seen people write plays that were clearly structured like screenplays because you spend 30 minutes of them, like taking in and out the set in the darkness because for like two minutes of, of, of a scene and it's it's you're not in the room you know like they're not keeping you in the room they're not keeping you alive and the older i get the more i just want to be alive in the room with other people um like that's that's everything particularly after the last couple of years where you know we we spent far too much time in the format we were actually the, the four of us are actually in right now which is talking into video screens um there are in terms of like you know uh using tech in conjunction with live performance there there are a, a lot of different streams going on right now you know the work that you've been doing at osf uh, with the quills fest has been exploring a few of them how did you zero in on the hella iambic uh you know app that this this idea of this what feels almost like a platform as the tool for the moment that that we're in i think we've covered some of that that question already but i'm just why why this point right now? I can start to answer that. I think, you know, game as a practice, as a community, as a, you know, um, as as in, in all of the things that games can be, uh, I, I think that has been a really powerful and uh, abundant way of thinking about participatory storytelling. And I think, you know, um, I, I, I think all theater is casting the audience, even if it's uh, in a proscenium, but game allows us to kind of think about that more directly. Like in, in Hella Iambic, I'm, I, I, I'm being cast as a citizen of Verona and I have agency um, and my participation is actually an act of co-authorship. So I think game is a really rich way to uh, break open kind of passive consumption uh, that we've been talking about for the past uh, little bit here and really kind of thinking about what are other modes of participation and casting the audience and uh, uh, shifting our relationship to the audience to one of co-conspiring and also world building. We talked about how all of these kind of things that are uh, seen as on the fringes in the world of the diegetic world of the play kind of suddenly become this uh, immersive world around you and you have uh, an agency to kind of 
interact with it. Um, so, you know, and beyond that too, it's just in the process of game design, like even thinking about the concept of playtesting, I'm always like, oh, so interesting, like playtesting and theatrical ensemble rehearsal processes, like so much in uh, common and also so much that these two paradigms of collaboration can learn from each other and enrich. So I'm just like also a nerd about bringing in these different disciplinary kind of practices to interrogate what we mean by best practices, because often those are, you know, also compounded with exclusionary <laughs> principles and also like, like create hybrid practices to really um, uh, think about new ways of storytelling. And I think game and theater together, like can do something really alchemical and powerful. Are you noticing in this process anything that, that it's kind of crossing over, you know, in that alchemical formulation uh, this time out? All of it. <laughs> I don't really I mean, think it's yet to be determined where, I, um, because we haven't, it's it hasn't uh, been launched yet. So, you know, part of my excitement was um, Latoya's Hella Cool. And so I was like, whatever you're doing, I want to do it with you. Um, and, and, and like, really, you know, like sometimes, um, as an artistic leader, sometimes you're making decisions based on that kind of intuitive sense that somehow something genius is going to come of, out of, out of, you know, making a salad with somebody who's a genius. Um, and so that's, that's my deal is like, um, you know, I had these ideas around Romeo and Juliet that I've had since the seventh grade. Um, and, um, and I, and I, and I, and I felt like, uh, I OSF, we did want to do something with Latoya anyway. And so this seemed like the best intersection between those ideas. I want to follow up on that since the seventh grade note, because it's something Latoya brought up earlier about what the vision of your R and J is. And I want to, I want to, I want to delve into that for a second because the theater nerd is, and the Bay kid in me is coming out. And so like, take us through this. I've heard Bay, I've heard West coast, uh, you know, hip hop, yeah. like what was your, what was seventh grade Nataki's dream for RNJ and how so is it manifested? I was introduced to Romeo and Juliet by Verda Delp at Willard junior high school in the seventh grade. And, um, and I actually, I didn't know until much later that I had a singular uh, experience with that because uh, Miss Delp, taught us Shakespeare as if A, it were art, B, it were poetry, and C, it belonged to us. Mm. And so I, I never had that moment of like, I don't like Shakespeare because I, you know, it doesn't belong to me. I actually had complete agency and ownership from the very first time I read it. Um, and I think the only thing that I was, you know, the most concerning part of the story to me um, you know, because we weren't talking about teenage suicide, you know, we, we, we didn't like have these ways of looking at it or breaking it down, you know, in, in the, um, uh, late seventies, early eighties in, in the Bay area. What I was most concerned about is, um, why are all these white people so unhappy? They're like rich, you know, and they have, you know, they have, they have means and servants and like, why are they so upset? And like, you know, so one of the things that I, I saw, I mean, and this, I've been holding onto this for years, is to, a way to answer that question. If I were to remove the accoutrement of, of privilege and access, what happens to the story when it's about two, um, uh, you know, kids who live in, an, in a very desperate situation uh, in, in which their parents are trying very desperately to get them out of it? Um, you know, like what, what, what happens to the story if, um, if they don't have access to means, 
Um, you know, because I don't know, I, I feel like I grew up in, in Reaganomics, you know, um, 1980s, um, Bay area, you know, when the trickle down theory was in full, full form. Oh, and public education was getting just, just ripped apart. I was, I was up in Richmond Unified and I think sounds like you were in in Berkeley Unified and like Mm -hmm. our districts were just, were whooped on. Decimated. Destroyed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and my mother was a school teacher. And so, oh, you know, and who worked two more jobs to, to make yeah. sure that we could, you know, get through it. And so th- this, uh, so you have this access and agency to this age old story that Shakespeare didn't originate. He actually co-opted and wrote Romeo and Juliet out of somebody else's story. Um, but I, I've always been curious about what, what, what is the impact of that story if you remove this idea of access Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, very recently with the pandemic, but you know, I don't know, I grew up in the Bay area. So I, I grew up watching people, you know, fall out of their, um, their, uh, their sort of middle-class situation, um, sometimes very quickly into, um, uh, an impoverished situation. And then the next thing, you know, that family that lived next door is on the street and, and there would be no, like, it was, there's no recourse. It's just by, and this is where they are now. And now this is a kind of norm, normalcy in the Bay Area. This is how people live. And so um, that's at the heart of my questions. And there were other things that were like, um, you know, what if Mercutio were the greatest cipher that ever lived, right? And so what we're losing and losing Mercutio is access to Mercutio's innate ability to be able to pull up story without actually having to think about it. Like he's just got affinity and access and facility. He just pulls it in to his brain and out it comes in this like tremendous, amazing poetic form, you know? So I had questions like that. Um, You know, what if, uh, um, what if the Capulets were uh, used to be extremely wealthy and then became destitute? Like what if we we watch kind of watch this fall from grace, you know, what if there's another motivation behind why Montague is in the position that he's in? you know, what if the, the prince is a land developer, you know, like, the, so, the, the, you know, like, because Shakespeare doesn't care, right? Yeah. And here's the thing, you know, I learned this actually when I worked on, and when I directed an August Wilson uh, play when I was in grad school, there are some plays that are written so solidly that it doesn't matter what you do to it. The play still, like, I could I could have a comb and a brush and tell the whole story with a comb and a brush, and the play still is pretty solid, doesn't care what, it, what I do, is not thinking about me, and mostly what it's doing is telling me that I'm stupid. Um, and so that's, that's what I, you know, like that's, I spent the entire rehearsal process going, I don't want to solve this problem that you've created, you've created for me, Shakespeare, because this is the play that you intended to write. Um, you know, uh, how do, how do I get into this poetic moment or how do I solve this problem in, in, in your plot device here that I, I don't, I don't like or trust. And what you learn from the, the playwright, it's very humbling to, uh, to try to to break into a play as solid as this one, what's very humbling about it is there are moments where you just have to trust the artist. You mm-hmm. just have to be like, he intended this thing, and you're just going to have to know that that intention still stands and that it, it's necessary in order for people to learn a little bit more about humanity. And so just go ahead and, and keep moving through it as if this tangible part of this play was necessary and impactful. And every time, single time I trusted it, it was like, oh, it's, you know, it was like genius, you know, and it's not mine, not my genius at all. It's like Shakespeare's genius right there in the, on the page. It's always fascinating to me, like coming back to a Shakespearean text, coming back to Shakespeare, like after years away from it. And then like 
you know, life has changed you enough that this thing you couldn't see before you can now see, right? It was, it was always there. And, and this process, you know, if, if you get theater pilled early enough, right? Like you start at like 14 or 15 and they're throwing R&J at you and, and you, some portion of the class is like, and you're just like, oh, there's something here, but I don't fully understand. And five years later, you're back again. You're like, oh, I get, I get Mercutio now. I didn't get Mercutio before. And like 10 years later, like, oh, I get, and it keeps on opening, keeps on opening. And you go and like, 30 years this? later, you're like, oh, snap. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> How is this always all here? Right. You know, that's, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation. But, um, and so, so you know, so, so we who are initiating the theater, we we know this 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 goes this way, and now there is this. All the, to Scarlett's point, there's the there's the game like like games are now a thing in the culture, thanks to like the entire time we've been growing up, uh, and have firmly established themselves, and and how this this deeply human text that 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 folks can find all sorts of stuff in or bring all sorts of stuff in and it can endure. And now, now bringing in the technology side of bringing the, this way of telling stories through technology. I don't think that that disappeared. There's, I don't know if there's a question here, but like, I guess maybe let me tell it to Latoya. Like, you know, you, as a studio, you worked with HBO, you worked on insecure, you know, a game for insecure building in a story world there, uh, approaching game mechanics into a story world, was it a similar process or, or, or what did you learn from, from that kind of thing where you maybe had access to the living, you know, you know, authors of the work versus this sort of oracular mode of, of dealing with, dealing with Shakespeare? Good question. Good question. Um, so any studio dealing with IP, one of the things we learned the hard way is that it's tough. It's tough because you're stepping into a world that's already been created and filled out. And you're answering to all the different people that construct that world, right? And so in Insecure, we were really lucky in having a partner in like Issa and Prentice coming on really early, um, but they were reviewing our scripts. I'm sorry, there's like an ambulance going by if you really see it. Um, but they were reviewing our scripts in the beginning of this, which is, let me tell you the stress, you know, I never read game before. And then Issa Rae is reading my freaking scripts to see if it like does justice to her work in the constraints of like, you know, I'm a mobile, I have to write this line in 29 characters, like... I might want to say something else, but it doesn't make sense. And then like the ways in which you write for a game that feels like it moves and it's punchy and it's interesting uh, is very different than how you write for other forms, particularly linear forms, where you have like total control over what the audience wants to do. The audience has an expectation that they are going to be involved and that they play. As soon as you call something a game, people slide into this other sense of Mm. I should be doing something. I am the main character. I am the hero here. And you have to figure out how you balance those different pieces. Um, what was interesting to us about as, as a studio about this work, and so it's me, the lead programmer, Owen, um, Chris, Mitu, and Anango. When we started thinking about what was interesting to us about this specific project and what was interesting uh, even in more detail about what Nataki was creating was it was creating all of these weird little curiosities about characters I hadn't thought about. So I'm a child of the 90s and the O's. Um, Baz Luhrmann's interpretation of Romeo and Juliet was playing in theaters when I was young. And so like that, we were, oh, of course, of course you would do modern adaptations. Of course you would go do these things. Like there was a new one every week. There was like, you know, Kai Pfeiffer had one. Um, there was Taming of the Shrew got done, right? With famously with Heath Ledger and uh, Julia Stiles. Ten like, Things I Hate About You. Yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. this was my era. This is my team movie era. Yeah. So it was like, you just go. Like, of course this is going to happen. And so when we wanted to see something new about something that you love, 
you're going, okay, what else can I see in this play that would be interesting? That would bring me back into it, especially considering there's so many other ways now to spend your time. There's so many other things competing. And we talk about this a lot when I think when you talk about the uh, war for attention, mm-hmm. because most people aren't competing in their category anymore. It's not like I'm just competing against other TV shows. I'm not just competing against, um, you know, other plays that are happening. You're not just competing against, you know, what's in the multiplex. Everything is competition with your phone, what's happening with your friends. Everything is trying to fight for the small window of attention. So it's like, okay, so what is, what's compelling about this piece? What's interesting? What's going to be different? What is different about somebody coming here and playing Hella Iambic and being in Ashland specifically that they can't get from a different rendition of it? They can go to the Globe. I want, I want a, another version of R&J, right? I could watch the Baz Luhrmann again. It's on Netflix. I could watch it. <laughs> like, what is the difference? What's going to compel me to come? And so when we started thinking about that, and again, the fun of this was because Nataki's vision was so crisp and so clear. I think there was one part where they were doing the Queen Mab moment. They were like workshopping it in the hall run. Um, I had never seen a hall run before, by the way. I was like, I don't even know what this is, but I'm just going to sit here and take notes. Um, and I remember at one point the actors got frustrated because they were feeling it. They were fully in character and they wanted to say other stuff and they couldn't say other stuff. They were constrained to what was in the current text. And so I think the vocal cords just like called out of something like, pretty, pretty, y'all hear me? Like, just really like, <laughs> and feeling like, you know, I'm also black like Nataki. We're also actually both from DC as well. So it's another like, specific black experience that you talk about versus West Coast versus East Coast and all these other things. Um, but I remember sitting there and being like, man, this is the blackest Shakespeare moment I think I've ever had. And I want to make sure that other people feel that when they come and touch this. So that you can understand that there's different lenses from which to understand this work. And I think to Scarlett's earlier point and to Nataki's earlier points, uh, there's a lot of gatekeeping in the arts in general. Mm -hmm. There's a right way to enjoy the arts. There's a right way to like Shakespeare. There's a right way to do these things. And normally these types of adaptations, these um, outsider perspectives aren't always welcome when you start doing these types of things. And so just the fact that, like, again, I loved Baz Luhrmann's version. I am Mercutio all day, all day. I have never thought about Tybalt in my life. Never, never. This is this is, this is the man that's stabbing people. That's Tybalt, right? I wasn't thinking about Tybalt. And then the costume designers for this production made Tybalt so swagged out. Number one, it's like me and Owen are sitting in the audience and we were like, was he playing? What's, is this Tybalt as Wesley Snipes in Blade? Like, who is? He had this cape at one point. Oh, what? so popular that we put the cape in as an inside joke in the app. You're going to have to wait to see it. But there's an okay. inside joke on the game. Um, we had like this cape. Tybalt as Blade is not something. And then you said it, and I'm instantly like, yeah. oh, sh-. Yeah. We were watching him play this. And then like with each outfit, like the portrayal shifted. Oh. And so then we just got so curious about Tybalt. So then Tybalt comes out. And this other like amazing suit with roses and the red into like it was just it got so much so that we decided we needed a capulet level group chat and we called the group chat touch my swag it was so ridiculous like but it it really started to go okay what are the different motivations and it's interesting because again the initial cut of the play that we were mm-hmm. working with and that we were designing towards so again we talk about designing for live experiences my lord did not know all the things <laughs> that we were going to get into with this one uh, in the initial cut of the play, there's not tons of characterization for Tybalt. Mm. Not tons. And a lot of the scenes around him were kind of cut. So he's kind of like just this hothead that pops out, and then he's like got an argument, and then he comes in. 
And then um, as the show continued in rehearsals and keeping workshopping, workshopping, more of Tybalt's personality comes in, more of his concern comes in, more of his, I'm actually a doting older sibling of this whole crew. I'm going to defend everybody's honor. Nobody's going to step to my little sister if I'm going to let her, right? Um, or my little cousin in this case, Julia. And it's just like, oh, wow, this person has a story and a means. And then when we realized, we're like, okay, wait. I mean, there were so many, <laughs> there were just so many questions we were trying to answer about this one project. So again, we had the Verona Bros group chat, but we're a woman of color-led studio. So we're like, where are the Verona Bays? Like, what is, what are the women doing in this? And, you know, quite frankly, not much, right? Juliet generally in a lot of these presentations is an object. And in mm -hmm. Ataki's interpretation, she keeps the lens really firmly on Juliet, even though Juliet is kind of being acted upon in a lot of the different scenes. And so even those shifts, right? We're like, okay, how do we play with this? If we give these people a say, what do we do with this, this folk? And if, if we, do we balance it between the Montagues and the Capulets and have everybody have a say, but then how many activations is that per minute? The other thing right. that I always bring up here that I think is super important to understand when you're building experiences period um, are people's different levels of comprehension. And so one of the things we're talking about in terms of trying to make like something that's timed to a live event so already a live event means it could happen at different times. There's not, it's, it's not a keyable thing. Somebody right. has to listen for the prompt and then go and the prompt might get missed, all these other things. So that's one just tactical consideration. But the second piece is how long does it take someone to experience the thing that you made? One of the things we learned about Insecure was reading speed. It was a really, really big indicator of how much fun somebody was going to have. And so we're asking our players to do a lot of work reading and interpreting but also at the same time processing what else is happening on screen or on stage in front of them and we're asking them to come back and forth and to participate in this one zone and then come back and give their attention to this other zone and then we don't always know is this going to take somebody 30 seconds to read is it going to take them a minute to read is it going to take them two minutes to read what's their motivation for reading all of this in the first place what is the piece that they like and so Trying to work through those pieces um, and those understandings was a big one. And then also um, using the rhyme step mechanic that we made. So the way it works, it's a uh, rap rhyme composition. So most things in games are what we call rhythm action. You press mm -hmm. the button in time and that's how it works. With ours, we added a layer thanks to Anango who has a rap brain and can be like, this is how we're going to do the bars. Um, we added a layer of composition where players select the word they want to use next. So for our test case, we took one of the opening sonnets of the play and then just had three bar inputs. So it's like, okay. So uh, in Fair Verona, where we lay our scene, that's how it opens. Um, we started it by going like, okay, is it Fair Verona? Is it Cutty Verona? So we think about Bay Area line. Is it Grimy Verona? What Verona does somebody want to be in right now? Mm. And then how do they express that for themselves? Do they think Romeo and Juliet are beautiful, star-crossed, stupid? How do they feel? How are you feeling about the play in this moment? Um, and so we had an envision for the insecure game and the way that um, Mira Beats works in that game is it's a self check-in in a lot of ways. Something has happened in the plot or something has happened with the player. And then they're able to craft a rhyme that reflects who they are and how they feel. And we wanted to take that same piece to, again, the super iconic work and allow the players to say, okay, this is how I felt about everything that just happened. I'm witnessing it. And I think one of the biggest things when you're watching Romeo and Juliet, because it's such a tragedy, is you know that we're on, at some point you're on this rail that we can't get off. We all know how this is going to end, right? But giving the player intermission, that traditional break, 
to be able to process what they felt and what they seen, particularly in this version, because in this version, intermission hits at uh, Act 3.1, after everyone is murdered, after Tybalt dies, after Mercutio dies, there's all the stuff when intermission is like, booms right here. Um, and we wanted that moment for the player to be able to breathe and take a space and say, okay, here's how I feel about what happened. So I think for us, um, a lot of what we try to do with the playable experience is to keep the person centered in the moment. And that's weird because people normally think of phones and stuff like that as breaking presence or being something that is competing directly with the work. But with us, we wanted it to be like, this is the way in which you show your love or you show your frustration or you show your feeling for what you just saw. And there's a way in which, you know, to Nataki's point earlier about, you know, when people started playing with second screen experiences, we, we didn't really have the relationship with phones then that we do now. Now it's very much the way we go deeper into something is, is we, we, we look for things in our phones about what we're looking at, or we express, you know, our own feelings about what we're, what we're witnessing on, on the phone and, 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 that's who we've become as a as a people collectively. I got one more question before I let you all go because I, I know we've gone long, but you know there's a lot of you, and this has been good. Um, looking at the the deck about the app, there's there's a roadmap here that's positioning it uh, not just as a one off, but as an ongoing platform for engagement. Uh, I, I think I'm parsing that right, and I'm just I'm just thinking about you know it is hella iambic or the framework that you've built here something that's you know destined to live on beyond this production, beyond, uh, you know, beyond how OSF uses it, kind of getting it out into the, like the wider world of performing arts. Is, is that something that you're, you're looking at as, as you're making this and as you're releasing this out into the world? Absolutely. So when we first started this project, we didn't think, and like literally this was just a cool thing we could go do with Nataki and with Scarlett. Like that was it. That was the whole vision. And as we started talking to other art leaders about it, people were really excited. And we didn't realize that, like, I guess this is something that people were searching for. Scarlett can speak to this more in terms of being able to relate and have some kind of playable product that wasn't too difficult to set up, that wasn't going to compete with the thing you're doing, but wasn't going to cost millions and millions of dollars, but would still allow people to engage and have fun and relate to the work in a really different way. And I think for us, you know, we, <laughs> we started thinking about how we wanted to expand it after Hell I Am Pixel. Like, we haven't talked about Augmented at all <laughs> in this conversation, which is, again, uh, it's just there's so much that we could potentially do with it. Um, but one of the things is about, you know, a shared sense of place. Like, you know, is it important to you that you went to something at the Kennedy Center, at the Lincoln Center, at, in Ashland? Is it important to you? What does that space mean in terms of the way that this is interpreted and why? How do I make my mark on a place that I've been? How do I select places that I've been? Um, and so, you know, these were the way in which the project's evolving is we're thinking about ways in which other live experiences could benefit from having this type of feeling. So we absolutely want to start with this one. And this, this experience is very much tailored to Nataki's vision. Um, but I think as it grows and as it expands, we're looking at, okay, can this be repeatable? Is this something that traditional, um, traditional mountings of this play are going to want? Is this something that, um, you know, musicians would want to play with? Is it something that we can do in small club venues? Is there something that we can do in different pieces? And just figuring out how a system works to allow an artist to basically come in and expand the world they're playing in through this app. That's what we're looking toward. 
Yeah, to add to that, I mean, we were having, Latoya and I were having coffee in Ashland and Latoya casually said uh, the most revolutionary thing about like, oh yeah, this is going to become a platform that changes how we experience uh, live experiences. And I, that really, you know, has been an anchor for me of, you know, like we talked about, there's, there's been explorations of second screen um, uh, experiences to film as part of ex extended cinema. But I think this, this, what we're exploring is really unclassifiable, emergent, captures something about this, you, you know, more expansive way of thinking about attention span, our um, attention span in our intimate relationship to digital media and immersive technology we have in 2023. So I'm really excited about this turning. Uh, this is the first step. I mean, we always called it a kind of a vertical slice because we knew that it would be a kind of a first step to something that we can scale up that can really... Um, uh, be repeatable, but also a really bespoke way of expanding the world of live experiences. And that doesn't just have to be plays or classical plays. That can be all kinds of live experiences. And I think it's also an audience engagement strategy. You know, I think this is um, really excited about those high school students who come here with, you know, maybe they're rolling their eyes about like, oh, I have to go see Shakespeare. What is that's irrelevant to me. But then them, their relationship to storytelling being able to be shifted with this work. So I think I'm really excited about it as a um, act of uh, uh, as a as an engagement strategy that we can partner with and support other um, performing arts presenters, I think it's also a way of thinking about fandom differently. You know, I think I think there's so many ways um, that this can be a powerful kind of catalyst to expanding access access. Um, I, you know, one, just my favorite uh, kind of like future, like, I feel like there's a bucket of like all the things that we would do as we imagine the future of it. And one of the things is like taking the bars you wrote inside of the play and tagging the world around you and kind of like making a mark in the outside um, exterior, like exterior environment in and around the theater. I think that, I mean, literally expands the world of the play beyond the curtain up and curtain down. But like, what is our... Um, what is the world we, the ostensible world, and what is this other layer of storytelling in the world around us beyond the theater, beyond the um, space of the theater? How can the world uh, become actually our theater? Nataki, any last thoughts uh, before before we go? I um, I also feel like, um, you know, there is this possibility that this becomes a tool in all kinds of ways for life experiences. Um, I, you know, I've always thought of it as also an educational tool because I'm one of those kids that was ferried off to the, the, the local theater and then I'm told that every way in which I engage with the, the, the work that I'm watching is wrong. And, um, you know, I was just looking for a way to make sure that another generation of people could actually feel like they were supposed to be in those spaces and that they were supposed to have those experiences and they were supposed to have a way of, of expressing their experience um, in in the tools that, that that they actually use on a regular basis, um, and so I think that's the sort of overarching goal for me is um, how do you create something uh, that's interesting and exciting to 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 me as as an individual artist, but also that can be utilized, you know, um, in all kinds of other other ways. I. Um, uh, I find those people that lament the possibility of this sort of um, interruption of the live theater experience. Um, I find those people to be exhausting that they're like, you know, they're so worried things are going to go in a certain direction as we are moving in that direction anyway. 
and so I'm really excited about a time when, um, you know, when uh, when my my daughter, who's two years old, um, gets to go to the theater and and it's like, oh boy, it's so boring that I have to I get to use my phone in here. I wonder what the new thing is that I can do. <laughs> you know, I wonder how else I can engage with this. Oh God, these are old fashioned tools, right? I I, I um you know I I do hope that. Um, that this is an evolution that inspires an evolution that leads to another evolution so that, you know, in a hundred years they can do with it what they want, you know, what they need to do. That's my goal. Fantastic. Well, Nataki, Scarlett, Latoya, thank you all for spending so much time with me today, uh, so much time with the audience. Uh, RNJ is running right now up in Ashland at uh, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And by the time this comes out, it'll almost be time for Hella Iambic uh, to be uh, playable along with the show. Thank you all so much. And uh, everyone can check the show notes for the links to all the work that's going on. Thank you very much, Noah. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Noah. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Nataki Garrett, Scarlett Kim, and Latoya Peterson for being our guests on the show this week. Check the show notes for links to that production of RNJ and for links to Glow Up Games. Let's get you connected with these folks. Um, I promised you at the uh, end or towards towards the middle of the news break that I was going to give you uh, my take on the news of the day uh, this week. Uh, I, I, I don't want to take too much away from this excellent episode uh, and have the, the news stuff kind of overwhelm it all. Uh, so I am going to do an irregular this week to kind of go even deeper, even more off the cuff. But here's here's what's up when it comes to star cruiser closing because i'm i'm seeing like a lot of initial reactions and i'm you know look i'm looking at it all i'm looking at what reddit's doing i'm looking at how it's going in variety i'm looking at people you know i'm not going to diz twitter uh because uh you know i value my sanity uh, i'm looking at our discord i'm looking in uh you know everything immersive like the group we have and you know, there are some people who are dancing on its grave because some people have been, you know, waiting for this to fail. I'll just, you know, let's cop to that right from the start. And there's there's a, there's all kinds of reasons why they've been waiting for this to fail. Uh, some folks, you know, and and uh, I do not count them. Um, I do not count myself amongst these folks uh, in quite the same way. But there are folks for whom this was always too expensive. Uh, I, I'm definitely someone who could not afford to go, um, and, uh, didn't get like special dispensation. Uh, you know, we, we have, we have a small, but dedicated listener base. I know a lot of people who made it listen to the show. I know a lot of people who made the thing. Um, and I've been talking, you know, with a couple of those folks today, um, lightly about it. Cause I, you know, it, it's a shock to the system to hear this has happened. Um, uh, but you know, when that thing was brought out, let's, let me just cut to the brass tacks. The marketing on this failed so spectacularly down to the level where SF gate today had a, um, a headline that was failed $5,000 a night star Wars hotel to close. There was only two words in there that were accurate to close, uh, failed, always subjective. Um, I mean, 
you can make a very strong argument because it's closing, right? Those things go together. But it wasn't $5,000 a night. It was $5,000 for, uh, for a room for two nights, <laughs> which is a big difference. Um, still a lot of money, but a big difference because you're talking more than one person and you're talking more than one night. And uh, it wasn't just a hotel. But you look at anyone talking about it and almost uniformly, $5,000 hotel, $5,000 a night hotel, $5,000 a night hotel. Once that entered into people's consciousness, it was not getting washed away. That failure, that failure right there is the seed of what is happening right now. Now, there are reasons why it was so expensive, but even then, when you get a categorical error like that, that basically doubles the price um, and, and messes with everyone's perceptions, there's no hope. And we know that Star Wars is all about hope. So um, that's the thing that if I was in my cups right now, I'd be most in my cups about is that spectacular marketing failure right from the start. Um, that is why we wound up where we are today. The other big thing uh, is that it was opened in 2022 as we're coming out of the pandemic. It's a cruise setup. Uh, we, we had this little thing in, uh, in the, in our discord. I, I basically said, uh, does anyone know how the cruise industry is doing? And Catherine, of course, being, uh, you know, the master of searching and finding things instantly, uh, dropped in the cruise information and, uh, it's looking like the cruise industry is only halfway back to what it was in 2019. Uh, and this whole thing was modeled after a cruise. So we we cannot discount uh, that this was designed for a different time uh, than the one that we're living in right now. Uh, and yet I can tell there's a lot of people who are like immersive is over. The experience economy is over, which is why I'm taking a moment to talk to you right now and say, bullshit, absolute bullshit. Um we have not figured out, we haven't cracked the nut yet on how all this stuff does work, but the sheer FOMO, the haterade that was brewed over this thing, um, that I myself <laughs> secretly drank. I was like, oh my God, I got to win the lottery to go. Or what a, or a rich friend has to be, take mercy on my soul. <laughs> I need more rich friends. Um, uh, the demand's there. The demand of that price? No. The economy's changed. COVID's changed everything. People don't do cruises in quite the same way, let alone a land cruise. And on top of it all, uh, you tell someone like, well, it's $5,000 a night at the, at the Star Wars hotel, and someone will tell you, go! And I'll save some of that for the irregular. But of course, that wasn't what it was. Um, and no, this mode of work is, is, is far from dead. And the best possibility here, there is a silver lining, and, and maybe I'll focus more on in, in the irregular. Um, the silver lining is that thing is built. It has all the physical structure in it. There are some folks I know who are saying like, oh, this is, this is like when, you know, the nighttime spectacular goes away. I don't know. I really don't know. But it does allow an opportunity. Sorry, I hit the microphone with a cord. Uh, it does allow the opportunity to put... You know, take things down, 
do some level of retooling and then remarket it in a way that reflects the actual price as opposed to letting everyone run around with $5,000 a night. Will they do that? No clue. Am I betting on that? No, I'm not betting on that. The headwinds are bad in the economy and the company is making lots of cuts. So don't bet on that. But they also invested a lot of money in pouring a lot of concrete and building a lot of things out. So expect some kind of second act. And hopefully we won't get into some sort of weird, just inert Star Wars mall situation. But I doubt the adventure is completely over for this way of being and thinking. Anyway, uh, a lot more of that nature in the irregular. Uh, I will do a short recap. Um, the next stage is coming along. Uh, I got to put the rest of the schedule up. Uh, take a look if you want. Uh, the program guide keeps evolving. Also, we just evolved the way the affinity dinners are going to work. Uh, keep an eye out for an email about that. Uh, those of you who have been grabbing the workshop passes, you should have a survey by now. Uh, and uh, you need to uh, pick your things. Uh, you've got a, I've got a few more days uh, next week to get me back that information uh, before we do a class selection, uh, before I, I, I put it through the, the black box algorithm that is in my head and uh, look at everything and make sure that we try and make everybody happy. It's just always a goal at this point, trying to make everybody happy. And yeah, um, there's, there's all kinds of more fun people joining, uh, but uh, we're an hour and nine minutes in. And so I'm going to leave that for next time. Uh, we have another wonderful episode is coming up next week on the show. Uh, I'm going to fire up an air table real quick. Uh, the thing I love most in the world is firing up an air table. Um, no, spinning one up is what I think I love the most. Uh, next week on the show, we're talking with Aaron Riley of the Texas Immersive Institute. That was also a really fun conversation. Uh, so tune in for that. And of course, uh, we'll be dropping things in the regular feed and here and there and everywhere. And there's was more news breaks. Uh, we'll talk to you about it. Uh, hopefully more good news. There's a few things on the horizon we're really looking forward to. On that note, let's do the end of the show. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar, the podcast. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. This is mostly my fault. I am Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>